and welcome to the Institute of All Politics. My name is Dr. Amanda Wan, and I'm the director of the China Asia program here at IWP. Uh, for those who are new to IWP, you're a graduate school of intelligence, national security, and international affairs. We have a doctoral program called Doctor of Statecraft and National Security. We have seven master's programs, including two online MAs and 18 certificates of graduate study and, uh, and a continuing education program. So if you're interested in learning more about our programs, please feel free to come speak to me at the conclusion of the event, and I'll uh, be more than happy to help you get connected uh, with one of our recruiters. And also, if you'd like to support the work of IWP, please go to www.iwp.edu slash donate. So today's event is part of our um, the program's China Lecture Series, and we have Lieutenant Commander um, Chris Glass, who also graduated from our master's program back in 2018, and he'll be giving a lecture on uh, the free world's response to a Sino-Taiwanese work. As a Navy civilian at ONI, Mr. Glass previously worked as an all-source intelligence analyst with the Global Maritime Environment Division's Transnational Threat Department, providing fleet and national decision makers in depth knowledge of the maritime domain in the, uh, in the U.S. Indo-PACOM and U.S. Southcom. Mr. Glass uh, presently runs a large and growing team of U.S. Naval officers enlisted civilians as a lead analyst for ONI Kennedy Maritime Analysis Center, Fleet Operations Integration Division's primary line of effort. He has authored a significant number of products and briefs in direct response to increasing signal demands from the DOD and IC writ large. Customers have included the Chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, the House uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Commander ONI, and the Commander of U.S. Indo-PACOM, among others. Chris also currently oversees a DOD and ICY monthly community of interest, which includes more than 40 individual offices and 400 members, which have equities informing senior leaders in the IC, U.S. military, and federal government. So um, thank you, Lieutenant Commander um, Glass, for having us today, and we look forward to your lecture. Uh, thank you, Dr. Wan. Um, good evening, everyone. So Ambassador Moss, Dr. Lachowski, that, of course, and uh, honored guests. Um, thank you for having me this evening. So. Um, First things first, I need to let's see if I make sure this actually works too. First things first, um, I have to go through a little bit of a disclaimer, it's kind of obligatory. Um, so to quote or misquote really a former first president, our former president, um, I'm, I'm here with it from with the government, uh, but I'm not here to help at least in that formal capacity. So uh, just to clear the air, uh, the contents of this brief were prepared or accomplished by myself in a personal capacity. Uh, the opinions are ex expressed by the author's own and do not necessarily reflect uh, the view of the Office of Naval Intelligence, U.S. Navy, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. So this uh, presentation is divided into five modules. Um, first, we're going to be going over signs when I perceive the signs of Western weakness. Second is dispelling myths about uh, China, Chinese, uh, China's global ambitions. 
third, uh, discussing 2027 and the prospect of a Sino-Taiwanese war. Uh, fourth, uh, the free world's response to such a conflict. And five, uh, conclusion, a vision of two worlds. So with that, we can get started. So first, um, what's in here? Uh, for the purpose of this presentation, I tried to analyze the last seven years um, in order to discern how uh, Russo-Sino adversaries might perceive signs of weakness in the West or large, um, with of course special attention given to the U.S. Um, almost certainly, these and additional signals of vulnerability extend by years, if not decades, further into the past, uh, well beyond the seven-year mark. But that said, um, I think it's important to note right from the beginning that uh, there are no sacred cows in this, uh, in this assessment. Uh, I did my best to avoid any mirror imaging, uh, remove any confirmation biases, and where possible approach this module uh, purely from how the adversaries might perceive the West over the last seven years. So, getting started. So 2016 to 2017, uh, Trump's America First agenda. So we begin when then-candidate Trump declared his bid for the presidency in 2015. Uh, notably, throughout 2016 and lead up to the national election in November, Trump repeatedly stated the need to focus on domestic issues and that NATO should play its, pay its fair share for defense spending. So to onlookers, this may have appeared um, and signaled uh, incipient cracks in the 70-plus year defensive alliance. Um, again, defensive alliances historically don't last very long without a common adversary, so I found that it is essential, this is an essential element uh, which many such multilateral agreements uh, require in order to be agreed on the main salient. So. Next, moving on to uh, the Brexit vote of 2016, when in tw June 2016, the UK voted to leave the EU. The PRC specifically took note and saw this as a sign that potentially the nearly quarter-century-old intergovernmental organization was already demonstrating cracks in its infrastructure. Uh, more on this shortly, but some of the key wedge issues which both Russia and China observed were tied to economics, migration, and the impact of the latter on national cohesion. So moving to 2017 to 2018, um, maybe touching on some of the protests and riots throughout the United States. So of course, peaceful protest is a hallmark of American democracy. However, in the aftermath of the Trump election of 2016, the hyper-partisanship divide in the U.S. became uh, much more starkly apparent. Nevertheless, China and Russia both took note of the increasingly excuse me, schismatic nature which the U.S. and the West were displaying, especially as it related to uh, racial divides, uh, various gender ideologies, and extremism as a whole. Next, um, talking about the Confucius Institutes, so this has been broadly viewed between both the left and the right, uh, something that of course is rare these days, um, as a potential uh, Trojan horse from China, as that, uh, noted as globally. Uh, they reached their peak in the U.S. at around 120 such institutions in 2017, although there are less than 30 active in the U.S. today. So they sparked fears of cultural subversion, uh, clandestine activity emanating from them, specifically industrial espionage, intellectual property theft, and research and development theft. Uh, one other concern is that they uh, were potentially keeping close ties, um, tabs on Chinese national students studying abroad. Um, and additionally, the fact that since their founding in 2004 until approximately 2020, these institutes went relatively unnoticed, um, I found to be particularly concerning as well. 
So next, 2018 and 2019, Trump discusses pulling troops from NATO, uh, pulling out of NATO as a whole. Um, I would argue that this is a demonstration of more cracks in a collective defense treaty. Uh, this would, at least as it appears to an adversary's eye, with Trump calling for the removal of these troops, um, if not total withdrawal from NATO, as I mentioned, as a whole. Next, moving into the civil unrest, um, yellow vest protests, as well as um, what Russia has perceived as potential social disharmony from mass migration. Um, while increased migration has, of course, been ongoing in Europe since at least the 1980s and really for centuries as a, uh, as a whole, the economic, social, and cultural ramifications um, has been a t uh, especially palpable in the collective consciousness of many European nation states in recent years. Um, this has led to the burgeoning of identitarian populist movements throughout Western, what we can call the old Europe, and Eastern, which is the new European Union states. Um, and as a brief aside, um, arguably these concerns weren't necessarily unfounded, especially in Eastern European states, which had been forced to bear the brunt of economic and social effects of these migration policies. I'll also just note that these countries, by and large, did not participate in the colonialist exploits of their Western counterparts during the age of exploration. Um, these nations also only just recently began to rebuild their societies and economies after being under the yoke of Soviet oppression, but that's, of course, a discussion for another time. Nonetheless, the apparent divides between Eastern and Western European states and European states as a whole um, can appear to an adversary as showing cracks in this EU infrastructure. And this was especially apparent to China through Belt and Road Initiative investments, more on that later, and Russia was clearly eyeing the revanchist policies in Eastern Europe, so vis-a-vis -vis Crimea and Ukraine. So next, going through the Hong Kong mass unrest and protests. So this was less so a sign of um, Western weakness, as it was un an unexpected reaction from the Hong Kongers, who, with up to 2 million taken to the streets um, during the PRC's illegal reintegration of uh, Hong Kong well ahead of the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984, which these, the, the Hong Kong was supposed to be reintegrated um, in 2047. But undoubtedly, this affected the CCP's calculus and timeline for retaking Taiwan. So in one sense, it might forestall China's forceful reintegration um, as it put them prominently in international headlines, but on the other hand, the resistance of Hong Kong might invigorate autonomous sentiments from the Republic of China. So again, positive and a negative reason to potentially reintegrate Taiwan. So next, um, we're going to be going into something that is to some degree termed uh, the kinder weapons that you'll see in a, in a moment, the two Chinese colonels who wrote Unrestricted Warfare. But although by no means restricted to 2019 alone, um, in fact, fentanyl overdoses have only continued to climb Sit, uh, with 106,699 deaths reported in 2021. That was the last year that data was available. Uh, but they began to sharply rise from about 2018 to 2019. So, as I mentioned, these kinder weapons um, have significantly undermined the social fabric of the United States in a devastating way. In earnest, while the PRC-based state-owned enterprise, chemical and pharma sectors have exploited this vulnerability, supplying the precursors for, for such drugs from Mexico and Canada, a deeper underpinning issue must be addressed, which is why do Americans have such a high demand for these substances? But again, discussion for another time, too. 
Next, something that's also figured prominently in the news recently, uh, ByteDance and TikTok CEO Shou Zhu testified before Congress. Um, there's been fears of Chinese or PRC espionage or the CCP espionage carried out through this app, which ultimately drove these hearings before Congress. Um, both this and the previous administrations have deliberated on whether to ban this app. So I would argue that the effects of TikTok are even more sinister than espionage alone, um, although yes, that is a concern. Uh, while TikTok's bike dance equivalent in China Douyin promotes wholesome, productive, and patriotic content to its own domestic audience, the algorithm of TikTok here in the US, if it is not downright, it does appear to be designed for malign and degenerate influence among US youth and population. Furthermore, it is well documented that the attention span, especially the young person, cannot process complicated and nuanced information from a 30-second clip, a fact that any adversary would cleverly exploit if it could. So these types of apps also exacerbate social atomization, leading to a less cohesive, um, less cohesive society overall. This brings me to the quote you can see displayed on the screen from the two Chinese colonels I previously mentioned, the authors of Unrestricted Warfare. These new weapons, these few gentle and kind things which are closely linked to the lives of the common people are prime examples of what I would argue is the asymmetric and unconventional phase of conflict we find ourselves in. We may believe that we are in a phase of competition, however, I don't, do not believe the CCP views it that way. So next, I would of course be remiss if COVID-19 didn't factor into this section. Um, while there's still deliberation, of course, within the intelligence communities, within the DOD and the government, as to the ultimate genesis of um, this virus, there seems to be a growing consensus that the effects of the virus um, came from a biolab in Wuhan. Um, ultimately, here in the West, United States especially, the effects of the virus caused the shuttering of many small businesses in the U.S. and led to a greater wealth and equality gap, as well as further aggravating atomization in the U.S. The PRC also initially used um, its production monopoly of medical equipment, such as masks, to exact a certain sort of, I would say, modern kowtowing, especially from vulnerable and developing countries, such as in Southeast Asia and Africa. Okay, so next... Um, Without getting into the cause of any of the images displayed here, I just want you to envision how adversaries saw this footage in the summer of 2020. Most, especially and prominently, I would point to the footage of DC burning. You can see there in the top right. This works very well. Um, and the president moving to an underground bunker um, to avoid these uh, to avoid these riots, these, these protests. To any adversary, this does not signal strength or cohesion of a modern Western state. The fact that the capital of the U.S. is burned and the capital of the free world signals a significant weakness, in my assessment. So next slide. Also prominently in 2020, you can see there on the right of uh, Will Vladimir, Alexander Dugan, who is often referred to as Putin's brain. He was the one who really popularized the notion of civilizational states. He argued that there was a resurgence of primordial civilizations, which far preceded the Westphalian order of modernity, namely a Eurasian one and a Sinocentric one. On the right, the book, The quote, China Wave, saw a significant increase in purchases um, in China 
specifically following some of the previously mentioned events of 2020. Um, again, not saying that there's a correlation necessarily, but there also was a significant increase in purchase of the book following the 2020 presidential election. And so that brings us next to, there's going to be a short video here. from the Jeanmin University. Um, he's a noted to an audience, um, students, um, professionals in China, that China essentially had operatives in the U.S. elite, the established elite in Wall Street, um, and essentially soft power, I'm trying to think of the right word to describe this, but basically um, these operatives being able to influence key decision makers here in the United States. Um, that they also had people in the Washington established bureaucracy. So again, I'm not trying to speak to the validity of any such claims. However, I am speaking to the fact that this is in the popular zeitgeist of the Chinese population. This had made its way not from, um, you know, in the Chinese equivalent of a skiff. This was out in the open, out in the public forum. So. <clears throat> Next here. Again, not going into any uh, political commentary specifically, but the events of January 6th uh, will have no doubt impacted how adversaries perceive the United States. Um, what they would have potentially seen is the violent overturn of a democratic election um, would have, to them, signal brought in the overall system. Of course, proceeding into the calamitous uh, Afghanistan withdrawal, um, so this went completely seemingly sideways, for lack of better terms. Um, this was largely seen as a third world nation defeating the world's most powerful military. Um, there's a longer version of this video, maybe many of you would have remember seeing it. I didn't want to play it because it's somewhat graphic, but these poor people as they're trying to escape from Kabul uh, by the airstrip there, some of them clung to the silence aircraft and fell to their deaths because they didn't they just wanted to get out because they were afraid of the So. Um, but again, this is not to mention the billions of U.S. dollars of munitions, vehicles, and equipment which were left behind in Afghanistan. Um, there's, this, there's no doubt that this is one of the final metrics uh, in Russia's calculus before invading Russia, before invading Ukraine. 
Uh, they perceived weakness and jumped on the opportunity to, to redraw national borders. So, proceeding into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, the inter international reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has likely caused recalculation by Beijing regarding its own prospective invasion of Taiwan. Um, so I would say cynically, uh, the invasion was probably the best thing to happen for NATO. Um, it reinvigorated the defensive alliance and saw both Finland and Sweden sign the NATO accession protocols. And even just this week, I saw in the news, I think this morning, that uh, Finland is going to be uh, actually joining, I think it's next week or next year. But this will more than double the order of NATO um, right up against uh, the Russian Federation. However, that said, um, also factored into China's calculus is the fact that the U.S.'s ability to manufacture munition and materiel is not what it used to be or what it should be. Uh, as you see here in the Japan Times article, um, U.S. defense industrial base currently lacks the adequate surge capacity for a major war, not to mention two-front war if a Russo-Sino alliance was formalized, but again, more on that prospect later. Now, we finished that module, but we're going to move now on to what I'm calling dispelling the myths of Chinese, or really the CCP, but China's overall ambitions. Um, and I also just want to do a quick aside, this is in my notes, but um, none of what we're just talking about or describing here is any way implicated against any one of the Chinese people. This is purely the CCP. Um, the, the Chinese people, from my vantage point, have been subjugated under the tyranny of a despotic regime. So just wanted to give, give that, that quick aside. Um, but having presented the perceived vulnerabilities in the West, I would like to pivot to dispelling any myths that regarding China's ambition. Um, actually went ahead a little bit there, but it's fine. I'll get to that in a second. A couple of weeks ago, two gentlemen, Mr. Eldridge Colby, uh, former Deputy Secretary of Defense and Strategy for Strategy and Force Development under the Trump Administration, and Lyle Goldstein, former professor with Navy War College's China American Studies Institute, uh, appeared on China's C-SPAN uh, Washington, Washington Journal to discuss China's military capabilities with particular attention paid to the Taiwan question. Uh, both gentlemen approached the topic from very different perspectives. On the one hand, Mr. Colby took a tough-on-China vantage, while Mr. Goldstein was dubious of anyone claiming that a Sino-Taiwanese war was anything other than internal Chinese disputes. Furthermore, this gentleman was skeptical that China was seeking to alter the established rules-based order. With this in view, um, a little bit ahead here, of course, but let's do a deeper dive into the psyche and the mythos revolving around China or Zhongguo, the Middle Kingdom. So. A little ahead there, but it's 2697 BC, and we're going way further back into history. Uh, but this is Huangdi, um, otherwise known as the Yellow Emperor. So the legend of China really has no true beginning. Um, the oldest and first persona to bear the marking of emperor in China is known to this day as, like I said, Huangdi, or uh, again, Yellow Emperor. However, while he is certainly revered as a deity to be worshipped, more on that in a minute and regarded as the initiator of the Chinese civilization, the concept of the Middle Kingdom, China, has no actual genesis. In fact, even in this founding myth of China, 
Huang Di was not creating China or the empire therein. He was simply reestablishing balance and securing the mandate of heaven after previous rulers had led it to disharmony. Even the revered Confucius, seen as one of the prime founders of Chinese culture, stressed that he had invented nothing, but was simply attempting to reinvigorate the principles of harmony. Uh, you'll note the photo on the left was taken last year on the third day of the third lunar uh, month, so April 3rd, 2022. This is the yearly worship ceremony for Huangdi held in Xinjiang, uh, Hanan province. That's not to confuse the Xinjiang, uh, but this is Huangdi's hometown. So next, um, throughout the millennia, China has not been obliged to interact with other civilizations, peoples, or nations on equal ground. This was in large part due to the vast expanses of hostile geography that separated the Han people from Middle East and Europe, both by the impenetrable Himalayas and the Tibetan Plateau. Furthermore, China's eastward territorial ambitions had always ended at the Pacific coast. What contact, um, what contact it did, did make its way from the west was always behind culturally and technologically. When China engaged in trade, it was approached, it approached um, this trade as vassals coming to offer tribute to the Son of Heaven, who oftentimes in greater share rewarded those vassals. This also had the double effect of reinforcing the notion that all the world revolved around Zhongguo, the Middle Kingdom. Um, so while this map isn't from ancient China, I decided to use it um, as a demonstration of prevailing Chinese millennium-long uh, milieu. Pong, uh, the Pun demand from <coughs> excuse me, the Ming's dynasty uh, Ming Dynasty's Wanli Emperor, uh, Zhu Yijun, the Italian, uh, the, the Italian Catholic missionary and Jesuit Matteo Ricci crafted a sinocentric cartographic map of the world. So again, the Emperor of China had asked this, actually the first um, Catholic missionary to learn Mandarin and to be basically welcomed into, into the, the, into the uh, to be in, in China, essentially. Uh, despite the fact, <coughs> excuse me, um, despite that fact, uh, this map did much to further China's knowledge of the world. It was essentially treated as nothing more than trinket provided as tribute by the European barbarians. So, <clears throat> fast forward from 2697 to 1418 AD. So at the top right of your screen, you'll see the famous Chinese mariner, explorer, diplomat, um, and court eunuch, Zheng He. When in July 11th, 1405, a few years prior, Zheng He departed on his first voyage to the Western Oceans in order to establish relations with the neighboring barbarians. He departed with 27,800 men, 250 ships, uh, 60 of which were treasure ships. Notably, of the seven voyages Zheng He commanded, during many of them, he directly intervened in the domestic affairs of local sovereigns, such as he did in Ceylon and Samudera um, on the island of Sumatra. This graphic depicts Zheng He's fifth voyage, in which he was tasked with expanding the Ming Dynasty's influence in the world, gathering envoys from distant lands while providing gifts to them from the benevolent Son of Heaven. Um, interestingly, during this voyage, as you can see in some of the images here, uh, he was given in the form of tribute to give back to the emperor uh, giraffes, lions, and elephants. And the Chinese actually, in, in the, the lore of, of this voyage, called giraffes uh, unicorns. 
That's not interesting. Cool. Um, John Cobb ultimately died during the seventh voyage. Um, he probably would have gone on to do more. Um, but shortly after, in 1433, due to popular discontent arising from the Mongol invasions of the north, the exorbitant cost of building the Forbidden City at that time, um, and the cost of upkeeping the massive expeditionary fleet, Emperor Hongxi ordered the cessation of building new ships and ultimately had the entirety of the fleet destroyed. Then, inexplicably, the archives um, disappeared, um, either were destroyed or just lost to time. It was after this time that the Chinese dynasties essentially turned inward, seeing as the rest of the world, rest of the world had little to offer them. So we progress now from 1418, so the 15th century to the late 18th century. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It was, uh, this was when King George III ordered Lord George McCartney um, to go to China and essentially to establish trade relations with the Chinese. Of course, unbeknownst to the Qing dynasty, these quote, red-haired barbarians had greatly advanced in their intervening years and perhaps for the first time ever surpassed their own technological capabilities. Ultimately, this McCartney mission ended in failure, almost entirely due to the vast gulf which separated how these two powers viewed each other. European states had viewed each other under the auspice of the Westphalian model under balanced power of politics lenses. China had more or less been monolithically and bureaucratically centralized in its monopoly of power for a millennia. So ultimately, Great Britain and other European powers saw the redress in this imbalance. Um, in their minds, not to necessarily alter the Chinese own perceivable order, but to engage in trade. Of course, that's also questionable because the trade was terrible because it was, you know, opium trade and forced China to open in order to uh, basically, yeah, commit, you know, humanitarian uh, crimes essentially against the Chinese people. But um, for the British, this led to blockading, the blockading of Guangzhou via the Pearl River, which you can see in the lower right images, and then also the seizing of uh, Canton, later renamed Hong Kong, demonstrated images above up here. Uh, for the Chinese, this was the beginning of the century of humiliation and left a profound and detrimental impact on how they perceived their place in the world. Furthermore, with the emperor no longer able to maintain his empire, this led to unrest as the people believed he had lost the mandate of heaven. So this so-called century of humiliation, um, at least this definitely how the CCP will message it, um, in many respects lasted from the first opium war in 1839 until the end of World War II. So this is a list of a number of all those, those events and, and, and really just the century of just uh, terrible troubles that fell upon China. Now, some may argue, well, that was 70 years ago. Um, China has modernized and their economy is too closely linked to the rest of the world to seek a new world order. And to those people, I would say that that is the prevailing wisdom of a quarter century ago. However, to Zhongguo, this middle kingdom with the mandate of heaven, anything other than a Sinocentric world order is a transient aberration. When we um, talk about just this last century, we talk about just the last even couple of centuries, this is absolutely an aberration in the grand timeline of 
of China's history. China has always been at the center of the world for, for literally millennia. So, um, this has been a sign of disharmony, waiting for a new son of heaven to get shipped back on the course. But to those still not convinced, take China's actions over the last few decades, especially the last few years. Specifically by the Belt and Road Initiative and its massive project to modernize, modernize its Navy. Um, what China global infrastructure programs and debt trap diplomacy is direct placement and access to prime ports and locations at key choke points such as Djibouti and its ongoing efforts to secure Atlantic-facing African ports. So again, for those in the back, I apologize, you probably can't see that very well, but this was a recent exchange between uh, President Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin during Xi's recent trip um, to, to Russia in which he was caught on like saying that we're driving the change not seen in a hundred years. Um, <clears throat> so as you can see, these Eastern autocratic powers are on the march. Um, they are seeking to recreate the global order in an image favorable to themselves. Nevertheless, suppose I'm wrong and suppose that the Taiwan question is just a matter of internal affairs to China. Is there a price for letting this stalwart democracy and the Republic of China go quietly into the night? Um, so this is a well-known depiction of the first island chain, um, often known as the flight within the DOD. Um, however, I, I tend to like to view it like this. So the island of Taiwan is the fulcrum of the fight and the gateway to the eastern Pacific. Um, moreover, the fight acts doubly as a great wall of containment to mainland China. Allowing Taiwan to fall gives the People Liber People's Liberation Army Navy direct access to deploy their Han, Kilo, and Shang SSN fleet. And more alarmingly, their Jin SSBN submarines, that's their nuclear submarines, directly into the western Pacific, western and eastern Pacific Ocean, holding the lakes of Guam, uh, why even continental U.S. directly at risk. Um, as a brief aside, you'll notice that I've color-coded the following maps with blue, green, and red outlines from Asian states. Um, this is something that we tend to do in the as well. But um, So blue, of course, denotes allied forces, which we likely, likely could call on in a time of war. Green shows those nations which we have bilateral and multilateral agreements with, um, but not necessarily military alliances with. And red um, is adversary forces. So, a failure to act would almost certainly uh, significantly undermine, if not downright destroy, credibility in the U.S.-led global order, causing allies to reassess their close ties to the U.S. <clears throat> Worse yet, it could alter our alliance and bilateral partners entirely, which might be forced to realign with Ch under China's uh, sphere of influence. And that's what I'm essentially trying to denote with the like, color changes from blue to green to blue to red. <clears throat> so in so this next module will examine the force posture of the U.S. Uh, potential key allies and the adversary slash red force elements.
So during a speech given by uh, President Xi Jinping to the People's Liberation Army, he called on the force to accelerate their modernization uh, programs to develop capabilities to seize Taiwan and move it from 2035 to 2027. Since then, both the former Indo-PACOM commander, Admiral Davidson, as well as the current Indo-PACOM commander, Admiral Aquilino, have taken heed and paid special attention to the PLA's force posture in the Indo-Pacific. However, with that said, due to nascent civil military integration between the PLA and domestic state-owned enterprises, uh, such as some shipping companies, there is potential for China to accelerate its timeline for a Taiwan invasion ahead of 2027. So according to the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, the Chinese military's most immediate limitation in executing the Taiwan campaign is a shortage of amphibious lift or our ships and aircraft capable of transporting troops to Chinese military needs. <clears throat> Furthermore, according to defense analyst Thomas Shugart, such commercial vessels as China's maritime uh, roll-on roll-off vessels and their total sea capacity is, quote, more than three times the tonnage of the Chinese Navy's entire fleet of traditional amphibious ships. You'll note on the left side of the screen an excellent publication by Mr. Michael Dom. Highly recommend reading it, uh, which lays out many of the TTPs, that's tactics, techniques, procedures, uh, which the PLA, the PLAN, and the PLANMC, the PLAN Marine Corps, could use in its implementation um, of commercial vessels for a time invasion. Uh, some of the images displayed on the screen are additional examples of the PRC's creative use of commercial vessel military applications. It's a little slower than I'm expecting right now. <coughs> so next display on the screen is the current, currently existing force posture of the U.S., the PRC, and Taiwan. Of note, of the 280 U.S. warships denoted on the screen, uh, 200 are currently assigned to the Indo-Pacific fleets with five carrier strike groups, uh, CSGs, of the 11 listed. The remaining forces would have to impact or change their operational area of responsibility from elsewhere around the globe, so for example being CENTCOM is one of those locations. Um, on the left, the three rings represent what the Naval War College has identified as the three PRC defensive layers. So the innermost layer, can I see on this? Yeah. Laser pointer doesn't really work there from this angle, but the innermost layer uh, constitutes uh, coastal defense cruise missiles, so CDCMs, uh, surface air and submarine defense assets. Um, this extends from the coast up to 270 nautical miles. The, the second defensive layer comprises submarines and air assets, which goes from 270 to 540 nautical miles. And the, the first defensive layer, really the third ring out, is composed of anti-ship ballistic missiles and submarines, which extends from 540 to 1,000 nautical miles. Uh, clearly, this is a concern to the U.S. Navy and its attempt to gain placement and access, specifically in a time of conflict in the vicinity of Taiwan. And this is actually brought, and especially in the Navy War College, especially within uh, naval experts in the, in the DOD, this is brought back into the fore an 18th, 19th century phrase which stated, uh, ship is a fool to fight a fort. So the context of that is historically wooden ships were incapable of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with stone forts on land, hence the prominent placement of such forts around West Point on the Hudson River. 
Um, what China's essentially done is built a modern-day fort through the use of their ring defensive structure and the People's Liberation Army rocket forces and their wealth of CDCMs. <clears throat> Next. As previously noted, the PRC has increasingly integrated its civilian merchant marine into military operations. But that also begs the question, how will the U.S. project power across the vast expanse of Indo-Pacific AOR? <clears throat> well, you'll see just below the U.S. Blue Force's uh, merchant ship silhouette with 181. According to the Department of Transportation, there are only 181 U.S. flagged limited tonnage merchant ships in our merchant marine. But how does that compare to the PRC's merchant navy? <clears throat> So with 64, more than 6,400 merchant vessels, the PRC's current merchant marine is comparable to what the U.S. possessed at the height of World War II. And even if we wanted to begin mass production of merchant vessels, again, we would need to significantly revamp and retool our existing shipyards to meet a wartime demand. Uh, currently, there are four uh, such shipyards in the U.S. capable of such tasking. Um, and that's as compared to the PRC's uh, at least publicly listed 72. Um, just to hammer this point home uh, a bit further, um, here are the distances that our forces have to cross in the Indo-Pacific AOR. Um, so respectively, almost 6,000 nautical miles from San Diego to Taiwan, 4,400 from Oahu, and nearly 1,500 from Guam. And that's uh, in compared to the 100 to 120 nautical miles which China was forged between the mainland and Taiwan. However, this also brings me back to a previous point that I was making about um, coalitions and allied partners. Um, we could essentially narrow this merchant marine delta um, that exists if we were to lean on some of our uh, East Asian partners and allies. This is why it is so important that any isolationist or nationalistic rhetoric needs to be somewhat tempered, uh, if not completely, in my opinion, eliminated because this is potentially particularly detrimental to our, our predicament of force posture and steel capability in the Indo-Pacific AOR. Alright, and so um, this animation demonstrates the force posture some of our allies, including Five Eye Partners, bring to the table. You'll note that I didn't include additional NATO partners for the purpose of this exercise, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily count them out, uh, despite the lack of popular support in those countries for sending troops to the parties. Um, currently, I have penciled in green for India. However, I do believe India would play a pivotal role in any such conflagration with China, uh, given its 1.45 million strong military and 130 warships. Um, Yeah, there is a popular uh, saying in military strategy, which is that uh, quantity has a quality all of its own. Um, however, that said, given some of the recent developments uh, with BRICS, maybe some of you all have seen this past week, so Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, um, and the perspective pivot away by the bloc from the US dollars global reserve currency, I do have some concerns whether uh, the US could garner blue force uh, support from the from Union.
So in summation for this model, you can see a grand total of all blue red forces on the screen when taking into account the prospect of an emerging access, uh, axis of DPRK, Russia, and China. Um, again, India would play a key role in any Indo-Pacific conflict, and I again want to reiterate that any victory in the U.S.-China conflict will require stalwart uh, coalition support. So you can't see the numbers in the back. Um, this would be the grand sum total of the different force posture. Again, that 1.45 million army strong, um, man strong uh, Indian military would incre definitely increase the personnel or manpower um, of, uh, of the blue forces. But this, this would be the comparable numbers. So. so wrapping up that module, we move on to the free world's response um, to such a conflict. So now we've examined those factors influencing the PRC's calculus for war with Taiwan, why the US and the West should care, and when such a conflict might occur. Let's look at what courses of action are as the US and the broader free world can use in response. Uh, currently, the US finds itself in the phase of strategic competition with China, and efforts taken at this juncture will have cascading consequences affecting available options um, during the succeeding window of crisis as it moves into conflict. Notably, the majority of the COAs proffered in this module uh, revolve around actions the U.S. can take during the competition phase. Uh, this is due to the fact that there are less dimes, so diplomatic, informational, um, military, economic, or military, economic, but specifically diplomatic, information, economic, less of those options available once a conflict starts. So I would say that the Biden administration's uh, uh, previous executive order, uh, 14017, uh, was a step in the right direction regarding economic and trade dependencies on China. Uh, further action should be taken to reshore domestic manufacturing to U.S., specifically revolving around critical infrastructure, defensive infrastructure, and national security necessities such as steel manufacturing. In addition to reshoring certain critical domestic manufacturing projects, the Biden administration should continue to work, should continue the work of the Trump administration and further ongoing efforts with Vietnamese and Indian counterparts in order to decouple the US economy and relieve dependence on China. In a similar vein, another critical asset are the semiconductors for microchip manufacturing, which Taiwan undoubtedly possesses a lion's share of. This is something, of course, that CCP is almost certainly behind. Uh, the U.S. must continue to make strides to bring semiconductor manufacturing back stateside. So next, um, looking at the quadrilateral security dialogue, the U.S. must continue to bolster initiatives with the Quad as all partner states are vital to any potential conflict with China. So looking at the Philippines here, I am a little less optimistic about the prospect of the PI joining um, any alliance to support Taiwan militarily, but the added bonus of gaining near-shore placement and access to Taiwan uh, by the Philippines and their military bases such as the Edson Batista Air Base on Palawan, uh, they would be vital, especially even if it's only used for U.S. SOCOM uh, deployments. Next, of course, the U.S. needs to commit to aiding Taiwan, especially during um, the competition phase 
as overtly as possible in order to signal its intent to back Taiwan in a conflict. Also, once a conflict starts with Taiwan, it is likely that China will declare a total exclusion zone around the island, as well as instituting a blockade, making resupply a difficult task. That said, as we have seen with the Ukraine crisis, the invasion of a you know, quote-unquote lesser state by a great power is not necessarily a fait accompli. Simultaneously, the U.S. should work to surreptitiously um, supply Taiwan and develop associated lines of communication should the situation escalate the conflict. So, the next war will almost certainly see some of the first shots fired in space. Therefore, the U.S. should work to target and hold at risk the PRC space assets in the event of conflict. The U.S. should also investigate reliable means of infiltrating uh, Chinese critical infrastructure in cyberspace to include its energy grid, transportation sectors, national security framework, and PLA command and control nodes, to name a few. Successfully exploiting cyber vulnerabilities during this phase could offer the U.S. and coalition allies a means of deterrence by eliciting a strategic recalculation um, through perceived vulnerabilities. Phase, um, I would argue that the U.S. should seek to inject uh, foreboding narrative into the zeitgeist of the Chinese population, um, instilling within the predominantly um, ethnically Han population still hold some residual Confucian-based uh, worldviews, even despite the CCP's um, attempts to eliminate the four olds. Um, but the worldview and the fear of what I would say is male erasure. Um, and the destruction of respective family legacies, some of these which go back millennia long, um, and have, has only been exacerbated with the problems since the one child China policy has been in effect. I think there was something like a few years ago, something like 60 million Han Chinese men had been spouses um, due to the one China policy. So, given the fact that 2022 marked a year in which the overall population declined in China, something that's not been seen in six decades. As well as a failed one China policy, subsequent failed attempts to incentivize Chinese families to handle children, this form of information operation could have debilitating effects um, if carried out properly. 
So next, uh, should the current Sino-American competition evolve into a period of crisis before a time of invasion, this window of time for action will likely be fleeting. During such an exigency, it would be imperative for U.S. and coalition partners to attempt de-escalation through the COAs instituted during competition. This could be accomplished through fractionally revealing, uh, through things such as minor system outages, each of the previously mentioned Chinese infrastructure sectors, while masking the overall risk posed to these systems, so soliciting the threat of uh, greater devastation. Uh, at, at such a time, at this time, the, such effects should also be reversible, and this could be reminiscent of a kind of uh, ransomware, essentially. The effects should be to elicit operational pause and recalculation uh, from Beijing, to get Beijing to think, today's not the day to invade Taiwan, not next week, not the month after. Additionally, the U.S. should begin positioning naval assets at key choke points, such as the Malacca and Sunda Straits, as you can see on the map, uh, as well as the Yellow Sea in the vicinity of the Bohai Gulf, um, if practicable. Also, the U.S. should increase the frequency of freedom navigation operations in the South China Sea, East China Sea, and the Taiwan Strait, while rapidly moving to in-shop additional naval assets to the indo pacon AOR. Finally, if such a, God forbid, this escalates to conflict and de-escalation de and deterrence fail. It is my assertion that the U.S. and coalition partners should unequivocally declare support for Taiwan, up to and including the use of boots on the ground uh, in Taiwan if necessary. So moving from this module onto the final module, I wanted to share a vision uh, that I think is not so different from that which the greatest generation based on the eve of World War II and even throughout World War II. This vision of a free, open, humane, and democratic world, or that of a, as I would argue, a genocidal, autocratic, and destructive one. The vision of a free world or a slave world. <laughs> Mr. Wallace spoke the free and the slave. So this is one of the possible futures the world faces. Um, some of the other uh, vignette images will load in just a second, but one of these worlds is one in which slave labor and forced sterilization exists. Um, one in which concentration camps and forced organ harvesting of religious and political dissidents exists. Uh, one in which human rights are not respected, one with a social credit system and a pretty robust police state, one in which, uh, one in which, which religious liberties are crushed and political sense eliminated. But this possible reality is a reason why the US and the broader free world must respond with a resounding no to the threats of conquest against democratic peoples across the globe, so that we never face a world where totalitarianism can thrive. The US must take up the mantle and be the city on the hill again as a beacon for the rules-based order, democracy, and free people everywhere. Um, with that, that concludes this briefing, ladies and gentlemen. I realize I only have a couple minutes left, but thanks for your time and attention here.